0: Well, good morning. It is good to have you. Those of you here in the room, thanks for being with us. Those of you joining us online, we're so glad that you're with us, as well as those at our Skagit campus and uh, also in Belize. This is a big weekend, a big day today, actually, Juneteenth, uh, Juneteenth, which is a, a huge thing uh, in our history and a, and a great thing. Uh, it's Father's Day. That's a big deal. Um, this is one of the one of the times we obey the Ten Commandments and honor our Father, whether we laugh at His jokes or not, we do that, and so I want to say Happy Father's Day to all of you. It's also a, a, a last and a first weekend for us here at Cornwall. One, it's the last weekend of spring, technically, on Tuesday, which is the summer solstice. The earth tilted at 23.5 degrees, the North Pole is the closest to the sun, and it'll be all year, thus making it into the northern hemisphere, the longest day of the year, and the official start of summer. Which we're hoping our weather gets the message on that one. Uh, But this is the last weekend of spring and I'm hoping it's the last weekend that I can wear a sweater and people don't think that's odd until fall. So that's, that's my hope. It's also a first weekend for us here. It's the first weekend of our summer series, and I am so glad that you're here for this today. I'm glad that you've carved out time in your day, and your weekend. There's so many things you could be doing, so many places you could be, those of you online and here. Thank you for being here as we start our summer series today. If you've been around Cornwall for any many uh, number of years, you may be aware that in the summer, we do a, a longer series, not longer sermons. We get those year round, a longer series. In the summer, usually it goes from 10 to 13 weeks, unless, unless I extend it, which happens frequently. <clears throat> and, um, and usually in the summer, <clears throat> we'll look at maybe a book of the Bible or a character study. A couple of years ago, we, we looked at the life of Moses, which was a great study, and just seeing all the parallels with Jesus in that one. And, and we've looked at different books, Hebrews and, and Romans. And, and last summer, we looked specifically at the book of Acts. You may remember that. What we're going to do this summer is kind of a spin off or taking off of where we left off last year. It's a, it's a spin off out of the book of Acts. For, for instance, let me, let me, maybe you'll understand this. Some of you know, like with uh, Kenobi or uh, The Mandalorian, that, that there was a story about Star Wars, but these kind of spun off. They were part of it, but they had their own life. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, let me try this one. Some of you know that Laverne and Shirley came out of Happy Days. I'm trying to get my audience here. I'm trying to figure out who I'm talking to. There was Happy Days, in the, but then there was this Laverne and Shirley thing. Okay. So last year, we did the Book of Acts. And what we're going to do this year is one of these spinoffs that kind of comes out of that. If you remember, I don't expect you to, but at the end of the book of Acts, it just kind of leaves us hanging. Luke just kind of leaves us hanging because the Apostle Paul is in Rome. He's arrested. It's a pretty minimal security arrest. It's more of a house. It's more of he's detained in Rome because he can be in his own house. And, and we never know what happens. It just kind of left out there and he's two years in Rome. We don't know if he got killed by Nero there. We don't know if he got you know out of there and he actually got to Spain like he wanted to go. We, we don't know. And it just kind of left us there. At the end of the book of Acts, uh, verse 30 and uh, 31 out of chapter 28, says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there, that's in Rome, in his own rented house. This was usually, uh, the, the years like 60 to 62. And he welcomed all who came to see him. Now, that little piece, one of the people who came to see him, there are all kinds of people coming to see him. He had visitors all the time. One of the people that came to see him when he was in Rome is a guy named Epiphras. Epaphras. And we're going to see him here in a minute, but he comes to see him while he's in Rome. And then it goes on and says, and boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Paul and he's, he's in Rome. Uh, He's in technically in prison. He's, not really incarcerated, he's just detained there, house arrest, and during those two years, not only are there people coming and going, not only does he continue to preach the gospel, but he begins to write some letters, and we don't know how many letters he wrote while he was in Rome, but we know that at least four of them made their way into what we refer to as the New Testament, and these are referred to as the prison epistles, that they were written while he was um, arrested in Rome. Uh, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were all written while he was in Rome. So that's where this spinoff comes, that we're gonna study one of these letters that he wrote while he was in Rome, kind of the end of, of Acts. He wrote the book of Colossians, this letter, and that's what we're gonna study for the next 11 weeks unless I extend it, which is highly likely. But for at least 11 weeks, we're gonna tear into this book of Colossians. It's only four chapters long, and we're gonna look at this. Some people would say, some scholars would say, some theologians would say, that the book of Colossians is the most profound letter that Paul ever wrote. Of all of his letters, it's the most profound. And yet what's interesting, and what's odd, and what's a little bit curious is that it was ever written in the first place, that it ever made its way into Scripture. Not because of its content, the content, as you, if you watch that opening bumper, you saw. I mean, the content is second to none. The content is profound. It's more the recipients that received this letter. The Colossian church. And you could almost say it's like a most important message for a most unimportant town. Or a most significant message for a most insignificant group. Or a, a most impressive message for a most unimpressive group or town, this place called Colossians, the the church called Colossians. Now, Colossians and the city, uh, Colossae, is never mentioned in the book of Acts. When Paul does his three missionary journeys, which again, we looked at last summer, he never visits Colossae. He never speaks of it. In fact, he never writes about it in any of his other letters. He never references it at all. It's just devoid. It's gone. It's not even there. In fact, the, the city itself, Colossae, is only mentioned one time in all of Scripture. And the only time it's mentioned is to the letter that it was written to. In, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, it says, To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Uh, some of your translations may put an A in there. It doesn't matter. Some people refer to it as Colossae. Others, Colossae or Colossae. Whatever. I'm going with Colossi. Okay, so this is the only place, grace and peace, says to you from God our Father. This is the only place that the town is even mentioned. And Paul's not been there. So from a human perspective, this church, this little church in this little town of Colossae, from a human perspective, is like a pawn in the the big scope of the kingdom of God. It's it's not a hub church. It's not a church like, like Jerusalem was or Antioch was or Ephesus was. It's not a huge church. It's not a metropolitan area. It doesn't seem to be a sending church. We never hear people going out to other areas from this church. It's not this wealthy church that gives all this money away to other churches and and people that are hurting. It seems to be really small, seems to be really insignificant, and yet Paul writes the most profound letter to this church. It's, It's an amazing thing. So today what I want to do Is that I wanna kinda lay the groundwork for what we're gonna study for the rest uh, of the summer. Now, for some of you, the whole backstory, the history, you love this. For others of you, great day to come to church to take a nap. But I hope you'll hang in there with me. All right, so I wanna give you some of the backstory and and some of the the author and who it was written to and what was the setting and the context and what was the issue and why was it written and what was it about. Kind of an overview, 30,000 foot overview that we'll be digging into for the rest of the summer. Again, as I do in these kind of situations, when we're looking at a book, one of the things I always challenge you to do is to to watch a video put out by The Bible Project, a group out of Portland that do an incredible job. So if you will this week, if you will Google these three words, read Scripture Colossians, just read Scripture Colossians, it will bring up a video, a YouTube video put on by The Bible Project, which will give you an animated uh, synthesis of this book. It is well worth the nine minutes because it'll give you an overview and explain the whole book that we're going to be digging into. Real simple to do. I would prefer you not do it in the next 35 minutes, but anytime after that, I would love for you to Google that and watch that video. So let's get into it. Let's, let's kind of give you some of the backstory, and, and probably the best way to start is to go to the map. The map, the map, I'm the map, I'm the map. So we'll look at the map, and the map is this. This is the Mediterranean area. You're familiar with that. Down on the right lower right-hand uh, area is Jerusalem in Israel. That's right down there. And clear up in the left-hand corner is Rome. That's where Paul is. He's in Rome, so he's way away. And right in the middle, you see there Colosse. Now, that is in the area what today we would call Turkey, and it's, at the time, it was called Asia Minor. Uh, that's what it was referred to as, Asia Minor. And this area was primarily Gentiles, although there was a Jewish community there. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And what's interesting is, uh, in this little town is that it was, it was like not sitting by itself. But it doesn't show this in the, uh, in the map there. But it's kind of like in Washington, we have the Tri-Cities. Uh, the Tri-Cities, Kennewick, Richland, and Pasco. They're all about 10 or 12 miles apart. They're all in the Columbia Valley. They all have the Columbia River kind of running through them. Same situation. This was in the Lycus Valley. There was the Lycus River coming through. I always thought it'd be great if they were on Facebook because they could say Lycus on Facebook. Anyway, <laughs> they in the Lycus Valley. The Lycus River is there, and there's these three towns. There's uh, Colossi. And then there's also Hierapolis, and then there's Laodicea, which is one that we've heard about more because there was a letter written to Laodicea in in Revelation. But these three three towns, and they were all about 10 or 12 miles apart. So very much like what we think of when we think of the tri-cities. At one time, Colossae was a, a, a thriving, great city. I mean, the very name, Colossae. It's like the same word that we get from Colossus, that great roller coaster at Six Flags, or or Colossal. When I was a kid, we went to a place where they had the the Colossal Burger. I mean, this Colossi, it was like great. It was populous. It It was prosperous. But then there was an event that happened, and it may not have happened all at once. There was a change that took place, and what was once this great, thriving, large, prosperous city became just a shell of what it was at one time. See, it used to be that the trade route between Ephesus, which was a really big city, port city, and the Euphrates River, which connected all the way to Mesopotamia and all to the east, that the trade route went right through there and right through Colossae. So there was a lot of traffic, a lot of commerce, a lot of people. But over time, the trade route shifted and no longer went through Colossae. Did did you ever see the movie Cars? Yes. Okay. In Cars, you know, the rest of you, you got to watch this movie. Okay, so Radiator Springs, you remember, Radiator Springs was on Route 66. And at one time, it was this thriving, wonderful city. But then the interstate came and went around Radiator Springs so that no longer people go through Radiator Springs. So it's a little shell of what it used to be. You remember that, right? The rest of you, you're going to love this movie. You really are. Well, that's what happens in Colossi. That it had been on this major trade route, but now this new trade route bypasses it. And so it's just this little shell. It's a small kind of has-been town, remembering the glory days. And you remember back when and that kind of stuff and wishing it was what it once was, but it was no longer. Another little history note from, from, from history. In the year 61, which is about the time this letter was written, there was a major earthquake that completely destroyed Colossae and Hierapolis, in Laodicea, And it's possible that because no longer does it have the same commerce, that it was never ever rebuilt to the level that it was before. So here you have this town that once was, that's never mentioned, and yet this letter written to it. Paul had never been there. Paul didn't plant this church on one of his missionary journeys. He had never visited this church. he had never been to this town. He didn't know most of the people. You read that in chapter 2, verse 1, I think. He didn't know these people at all. But during his third missionary journey, Paul spent an extended amount of time in Ephesus. Ephesus was a major port city, a big city. Um, And while he spent a a couple of years there, um, again, we studied this last year, in Acts chapter 19, you you hear about how he's there and he's teaching every single day. He's lecturing and he's telling about Jesus and the gospel and and the grace that's the kingdom of God, all of these things, the death and resurrection of Christ. And he does this every day in the synagogue until he gets kicked out. And then he rents this hall from a guy named uh, Tyrannus, T-Rex. He rents this hall and he begins to lecture every day. We read about this in Acts chapter 19, verse 10, where it says, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So here are these people, this Ephesus, people, because it's a port town, there are people coming and going all the time, and every day Paul is lecturing, and this message of the gospel doesn't just start with this little church in Ephesus. It's spread throughout, and a lot of the churches that are planted in that area happen because of what Paul is doing in Ephesus. It appears that while he's in Ephesus for those two years, um, uh, uh, Epiphras from Colossae, comes to Ephesus. See, this is hard to say, Epiphras, to Ephesus. So he comes there, whether it's on business or he's going on a vacation, he comes there and apparently he hears the message of Jesus and apparently he's saved under Paul and it appears that maybe he even spent some extended time in those two years being discipled by Paul. We'll see this in just a minute. But Epiphras does not stay in Ephesus. He decides to go back home to Colossae. And when he goes back home to Colossae, he takes the good news of the gospel with him. So that when Paul eventually writes these people, he says, when you first heard the gospel of truth, remember where you heard it. And we see this in Colossians chapter one, verse seven. You learned it from Epiphras, our dear fellow, uh, fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. He so said, you heard about Jesus, not from me, but from Epaphras. And then the way Paul refers to him as our, our dear fellow servant, as our, as our faithful minister in Christ, it, it sounds like there's a, a great relationship that maybe Paul mentored him and maybe even sent him. So Epiphras appears to be the, the founder, the planter of this church in Colossae and the pastor of this church. And as we will see next week, this church is doing exceptionally well in their spiritual journey, in their faith. We'll look at that completely next week. And then while they're continuing to grow in the faith, there's, there's a concern. There, there's, a, there's some seismic trembling, not geo, uh, geologically, But theologically, there's some seismic trembles that give some concern, some heresies that may have made its way into the church or maybe was threatening to come into the church. Some stuff from the surrounding culture and the surrounding religious setting that that there was some concern. And at this point, now fast forwarding, Paul is in Rome, so Epaphras travels to Rome now, whether, again, whether he's going just to see his mentor and spend some time with him, whether he's saying, I need a Mediterranean vacation, maybe he's taking a sabbatical, we don't know, but he ends up in Rome, and in this time, he talks to Paul. He talks to Paul, and maybe he's saying, Paul, how do I deal with this stuff? Because this is all new to me. I'm, I'm a young pastor. You've done this for years. And in this conversation, he tells Paul about how well this church is doing, how they're thriving. But then he talks about these threats, this controversy, this heresy. And Paul decides, while he's there in Rome, that he will write a letter to this church in Colossae. Thus, the letter, the book of Colossians. And when he does that, he addresses some of these threats, some of these controversies, some of these heresies that are either threatening the church or have already made their way in the church. And what's a little bit frustrating is when you read the letter, he never comes out and simply states, this is the issue we've got to deal with. But if you look at the things that he talks about, and the things that he said straight, you can kind of start putting together a composite of what was going on. And the best way I can explain this is that there was just this this stew, this, this smorgasbord of isms that were either making their way into the church or threatening to come into the church. And let me just go through them real quickly, because Paul addresses some of these things in this letter. One would be early Gnosticism. Some of the thought, and we've talked about Gnosticism. I won't go into that again today. But this early Gnosticism that would lead people either to asceticism of just like this this deprived life, even to mutilating their body, or to hedonism where you just like throw all restraints aside and just go for it. And he addresses that. But not only the Gnosticism he addresses there's some Jewish legalism that's made its way in. Remember, there's a, there's a Jewish community in the, in the town and some of the things that Paul sets straight are directly of the legalism that you would find of the Jewish law. In addition to that, there's some Eastern mysticism of some things of of this kind of realm that's a little bit out there, and he addresses those things. And there's unbiblical spiritism when he talks about worshiping of angels and some things that are just completely unbiblical. And on top of all that, there's this pagan humanism when he talks about some of the Greek philosophy that's making its way into the church. So we see this uh, briefly in in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, Paul says to them, See to it. That no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And that last phrase, rather than on Christ, pinpoints the number one issue that Paul wants to address in this letter. And that is this. He wants to make sure That above all else, there's absolute clarity about who Jesus Christ is because there's been some false teaching about Jesus. The Gnosticism for one, but there's others. Absolute clarity about who Jesus is. And so when he does this, he wants to make sure that their their Christology, their belief and their, their understanding, their knowledge of Jesus is clear. And in the Christology, it's basically this, that he is not prominent, he is preeminent. And there's a big difference. And I want to tell you that that kind of a message that Jesus isn't just prominent, but he is preeminent was not popular then. And it's not popular today, especially if you're in a pluralistic society where there's all these different things and where everyone needs to have equal time and everyone's equally right. Or when there's syncretism that's happening where we just kind of pick and choose cafeteria style and put together our own to say that, that Jesus is not just prominent, but he is preeminent is not a popular statement. In fact, it's not politically correct. When you begin to preach that Jesus is not prominent, but he's preeminent, you're seen as being narrow, as being arrogant, as being judgmental, uh, all of these things, uh, of being unkind, being a hater, all that, the whole idea with this is that so often our culture, then and now, wants to see Jesus as one amongst equals. But Jesus is one above all others. He's not one amongst equals. Jesus is not just another good teacher. He's not just a healer. He's not just another guru, another sage, uh, another shaman. He's not just another rabbi. He's not just another prophet. He's not even just another Messiah or another deity. Man, years ago when I would go to India, we would talk to like our cab drivers. The, The Hindus have millions of gods. When we talk about Jesus being God to them, no problem. Get in line. We got 300 million other ones, why not? He's not just another one of them. See, here's what happens in that culture and in our culture. It's not that they deny Jesus. It's not that we deny Jesus. We dethrone him. He is not one among equals. He's one above all others. And I just want to say this: we will not be arrogant about this, but we will not be apologetic about this either. Amen. Amen. We will not back down from this truth. Amen. And Paul makes it so clear, and he writes this picture, this passage, some believe that this was a, a, a an early hymn of the church that they would sing. It was very poetic and In three weekends from now, uh, Pastor Kip is going to preach on this passage, and you do not want to miss this. Kip's in Kansas right now, and Kip, if you're watching, it better be a good sermon. All right. Because Paul writes this incredible, incredible, I mean, it is so beautiful, this, this high and lofty, exalted view of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether rulers or thrones or powers or or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from amongst the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is our Jesus. And three weeks from now, you're going to hear that one and it's going to be good. And let me just make it clear again. If you don't believe in Jesus, we are so glad you're here. We really are. You are welcome here. We want you here. This is what you need to know about us. Around here, as I said, unapologetically, we have a one-track Jesus mind. It's all about Jesus here. There is no one else to be worshiped except Jesus here. There is no one else to be exalted except Jesus here. There's no one else to be followed, no one else to be surrendered to except Jesus around here because we are his bride. We are his body. We are his church. We were purchased with his blood. We were redeemed by his finished work on the cross and we are empowered by his resurrection. We're filled with his Holy Spirit, gifted and called to fulfill his purpose of bringing his kingdom to bear on this earth all for his glory. We are all about Jesus here. And I wanna say this to you as well. And if you're online or if you're here visiting, if you're involved with the church, I'm so excited for that. If they're not all about Jesus, find a different church. And if Cornwall Church ever gets to the point where we're not all about Jesus, find a different church. It's all about Jesus. And long before Paul confronts any of these and denounces any of these and refutes any of these issues, he says, I wanna make sure we're really clear about our firm foundation that we're built on, about what we're really about, of what we fix our eyes on. And one of the things he confronts is this Gnosticism In chapter two, verse nine, it says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. The Gnosticism said that material and spiritual could not come together. Spiritual is good, material is awful. But here in Jesus, all of the deity, all of the goodness of God dwells in the humanity of Jesus, the spirit in the material. And then he makes a statement that takes it to the next level that's even more mind boggling. When he says this, the next verse, and you, you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. All the fullness of the deity dwells in Jesus, and you have all of your fullness and completion in Jesus. Uh, in, In chapter one, verse 27, he would talk about this mystery that's been given to the Gentiles, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory this vast mystery of of Christ dwelling right within us. And then he he addresses that, that he is the head over every power and authority, all those things. What he comes to is this, is that Christ alone is enough. I mean, we sang about that this morning. Christ alone is enough. You don't need the secret knowledge of the mystics. You, you don't need the secret passwords of the, the Gnostics. You don't need the legalism of the law that will never save you. You don't have to have this diet or, or these restrictions that are somehow are gonna, gonna get you in. You, you, don't, you don't need to do all of those things. It's in Christ and Christ alone, and that Christ alone is enough. He just wants to set up the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Christ is above all, and Christ is all, and that's just the first half of the book, and then the second half, chapters three and four, talks about therefore. Since that's true, since this is who Jesus is, and he's in you, then, and then it gets really, really practical, then that should change how you live. That should change how you think. That should change how you act. That should change your behavior, That that will begin the shaping in how you work and how you work with employees and your boss. That will change how you do your family life and your home life. That will change how you operate in the world. That will change how you operate in the church. It affects all of your life. You begin to see that. It's no wonder that so many scholars say this is the most profound letter that Paul ever wrote. So what do you say? Should we get into it? All right. I've got some time left. Let's let's go ahead and get started in this one. All right, so it's in the book of Colossians, which if you have a tablet or a phone or a device, you can just kind of dial that up. But if you have an old school Bible, remember this phrase: giants eat peas and carrots. Because that's how you always remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's kind of an acronym. Giants eat peas and carrots you're welcome. Now you can be dismissed. So we're going to the carrots, all right? Giants eat peas and carrots. Colossians. So you can turn there. It's about probably four-fifths of the way back in your Bible, way towards the back of your Bible, tiny little thing, just four chapters. And he starts off this way. It's, remember, this is a letter. Colossians chapter one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Paul. And then he says, an apostle of Christ Jesus, which at first is like, Whoa, I mean, that's just kind of coming out of the gates a little bit arrogant. I mean, he's like, he's just throwing down titles right from the beginning. And it's just like, here it is. I mean, what if if I met you today for the first time and said, hi, I'm Bob. That's Pastor Bob to you. Actually, senior Pastor Bob around here. (laughs) Not senior in chronological age. I mean, Kip is way older than me. But otherwise, I'm the senior. I mean, if we, I'd like a plaque on my chair. I'd like a parking spot with my name. Yeah, for, in fact, Reverend wouldn't be bad. I mean, I, it's like, Paul, you, know, you get off the titles thing. It's so arrogant. I don't think that's what he's doing at all. I don't think this is a pride arrogance thing where he's saying, uh, just make sure you refer to me as the Apostle Paul. He's not doing that. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And maybe, maybe he uses that phrase, Apostle, I don't know, as like authority, not in an arrogant way, but remember, he's never been to this church. He's never met these people. They don't know him. They've heard of him, but he's never been there. And maybe he's like saying, I'm going to say some things in this letter, and I want you to know that I'm an apostle of Christ, and and there's some authority, there's some backing behind that. Sometimes I get requests for letters of of recommendation or or reference letters, and they'll always say, make sure you put your title on that because it gives it some more authority or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it's not that hard to get a library card. Okay. But regardless, maybe it's for authority, but maybe it's something even different than that. And maybe when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, at that point, he's not talking about a title, but a task. The word apostle means sent ones, that he's sent. And maybe when he says, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, I'm not being arrogant, and I'm not even trying to have authority. I'm just telling you, this is a, this is a calling, and this is an obedience that I have fallen, follow, following, that I have following Jesus on. I mean, if you'll let me kind of divulge oh, uh, divert away from Colossians, in Galatians, he references this. In Galatians 1, it says, But when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I'm, he's being sent to the Gentiles. I did not consult any man. Paul says, listen, this is what I was created to do. And it wasn't by my choosing, not something I achieved, not something I pursued. God created me for this. And by his grace, he called me to this. And he sent me as an apostle not to the Jewish people, not to Israel, to the Gentiles, which doesn't really make any sense at all if you know Paul and his life. Again, in a Philippians, he talks about all of the things that he is a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that his, his parents were Hebrews, that he was a, a Pharisee, that he was you know tutored, that he was legalistic, that he was Jewish to the core. And some of you are aware that the the tension and the division between Jewish people and Gentiles was like, uh, never the twain shall meet. And here's this Paul who's Jewish through and through, and yet Christ has sent him as an apostle to the Gentiles. It's, It's unimaginable what he would be doing. And then on top of that, look at how he addresses this church that is primarily made up of Gentiles. Verse two, to the Holy And faithful brothers holy now that's not halo that's not moral perfection the word holy means set apart set apart for God's purposes that's why the tabernacle was holy it's just a tent but it was set apart for God's purposes that made it different That's why the the lampstand was holy. It was Yeah, there's a lot of lampstands, but this one was set apart for God's purpose. The Ark of the Covenant was holy because it was set apart for God's purposes. The priests, the Levitical tribe, they were holy. They were set apart. The Jews, Israel as a nation, they were holy. They were set apart. And yet he's calling this Gentile church holy. Wait a second. They're Gentiles. They're not Jewish. They're not a part of the holy nation but something's happened. You see throughout the New Testament, when he refers to those who are followers of Jesus, he refers to them as holy and as saints, not because of moral perfection, but because they're called to be set apart, different from the world, set apart for God's purposes. So to you, Cornwall Church, you saints, and some of you saying, I'm not a saint. Yes, you are. You just don't act like it. You are a saint. You are holy. You are called. You are set apart because what Christ has done for you and in you and through you and will continue to do. And he says to this Gentile church, you are holy. Not only holy, but you're holy and faithful. And I won't, next week, we'll get into that one. So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. But they have endured. Remember Nero and his persecutions and all the hardships and now all the pressure from the culture. And they've endured. And he says, you're not only uh, holy, but you are faithful. And then the unthinkable, he calls them brothers. No Jewish person would ever call a Gentile brother. Now, for us, that's not a big deal. We're like, yo, bro. I mean, it's like we just throw that around. Over. Even in church. I was raised in traditional church. Some of you remember this. We used the whole brother and sister title a lot when I was growing up. You know, someone would get up and say, thank you for that beautiful offertory Sister Sister Finney. <laughs> now we've got Brother Johnson's going to come and tell us what's happening in the fellowship hall this afternoon. Some you remember that whole thing? Yeah. Okay, thanks. I was like, well, We were the only ones that used brothers and sisters. I was like, hey, Brother Marvel. Ah, yeah, there we go. Sister Leibold, come on up here and sing for us. Would you? you, know, that kind of stuff. You know, he's calling them brothers and sisters. It's almost this picture like, like, they would never talk. They would never touch each other. And he's like saying, brothers don't shake hands. Brothers got a hug. I mean, it's like, he's calling them brothers. And what would do that? What would cause a guy who's a Pharisee, Jewish, through and through, to the core, who's grown up to believe that Gentiles are dogs, that they are fuel for the fires of hell, what would cause him to call them holy and faithful and brothers, only one thing? He says, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. In Christ at Colossae. Um, I, don't, I don't know Greek. I don't speak Greek. I can't read Greek. But I can read commentaries of guys who do. And one of the commentaries of a guy who's a very Greek scholar, he said that in the original Greek, there's a parallel kind of thing that happens in this passage that we don't get in our translations. Because here it says, you know, the the brothers in Christ at Colossae. It says in the original Greek, it's in Colossae, in Christ. And there's an intentionality that in Colossae, in Christ. See, being in Colossae was every reason why there should be division between Paul and these people. One, just geographically, they're in Colossae, he's in Rome. Not only that, but just sociologically. He's in Rome, the center of the Roman Empire. They're in Colossae, this two-bit has-been town that wishes for the glory days of yesteryear. Spiritually, they're in Colossae, they're Gentiles. He's Jew, he's one of the chosen ones. They're one of the outcasts. In Colossae has everything to do with being separated, but they're not just in Colossae. They're in Colossae and in Christ, and that changes everything. And this is what I want us to see, that, that for this whole thing of being in Colossae and in Christ, that it's more than our place, it's our position. Colossi is where they are. In Christ is who they are. All right, they're in Colossi, and Colossi, Colossae is where they live, but their life is in Christ. They reside in Colossi, but their greatest reality is in Christ. And while this place, Colossae, that can change, the geographical setting of where they are can change, their status and their standing of who they are in Christ is solid and confirmed because of what Christ has done. It's just this beautiful picture, that yeah, you're in Colossi, but that doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that you're in Christ. I mean, think about this. Here we are at Cornwall Church. We're at Cornwall Church. We say, we're at Cornwall Church, at Skagit, but in Christ. And Belize, but in Christ. Online, but in Christ. In the room, asleep, but in Christ. That, that, that yeah, we're in different places, and that doesn't matter nearly as much as who we are and our position and our reality in Christ. And he says that is so important, that our identity, our unity, our sufficiency, our very life is in Christ. And what he makes it so clear to them is this, is that everything is in Christ, You'll see this come up over and over again, this, the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ and our life within him, Christ in us, the hope of glory, us being in Christ. Uh, and later, and, and we'll, we'll preach on this in August sometime, probably middle of August. Let me jump ahead just real quick. In Colossians chapter three, verse 11, he says this, here, here where? Here where? Like here in Rome or here in Colossae? Or here in Jerusalem? Or here in the Mediterranean? No, no, no. Here, here in the church, here in the family of God, here in the kingdom of Christ, here in Christ, here in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, and look at this phrase, but Christ is all and is in all. That's his bottom line. It comes back to the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. Okay, now I'm out of time, but we got to finish at least verse two or we'll never get through this book in 11 weeks. All right, so he ends it this way. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So now he said, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus set apart and my brother Timothy, we didn't even talk about Timothy, and you're the, the holy, faithful brothers in Colossae and this is the first word he says to them. Grace, grace. Here's this old guy, Paul, and he's been legalistic, he's been religious, but he found Jesus, and one thing that changed his life was grace. And while I can jump right ahead to the very end of the letter in chapter 4, verse 18, the last thing he says to them, grace be with you. He bookends this letter, he says, let's start with grace, let's end with grace, grace and peace to you. Oh man, I am so excited for us to tear into this letter. This I've got to stop right now, but here's what I want to do. Here's my my two challenges for you. The first one is this, watch the nine minute video. If you can't find it, talk to your grandchildren. They can Google it for you very easily. (laughs) Watch the nine minute video. give you an overview of Colossians. The second thing is this, remember this reality. You're in Bellingham, you're in Skagit, you're in Belize, you're online, but you're in Christ. And that doesn't change. When you're at work, you're still in Christ. When you're at home, you're still in Christ. When you go on vacation, you're still in Christ. When you're in traffic, you're still in Christ. When you're online, you're in Christ. And when you're in church, you're in Christ live in that reality because Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead so that we could be in Christ.